In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Caroline Van Dam, adult psychiatrist and family and systemic psychotherapist specializing in the psychosocial rehabilitation of patients suffering from chronic psychotic disorders and co-teacher of Tibetan Buddhist guru and Soa Rigpa doctor Nida Chenat-Sang. Caroline discusses the cultural complexity of being raised in Belgium, how an early interest in the mind saw her train as a psychiatrist, and the reasons for her specializing in chronic psychosis. Caroline also recounts her first encounters with Buddhism, including a meeting with a mysterious Lama, and the story of her collaboration with Dr. Nida Chenak-Sang to train counselors informed by both Western psychology and traditional Tibetan medicine. Caroline draws on her professional experience to reveal rapport-building skills for clinicians, as well as discussing religious experience as a form of psychosis and the pros and cons of the religious mind. So without further ado, Dr. Caroline Van Dam. Dr. Caroline Van Dam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so delighted to be speaking with you today. And uh, gosh, so much that I want to ask you about and so much that I'd like to discuss with you. But perhaps we start uh, with your biography. Could you say a little bit about your upbringing and your early education, the context of that, um, and how it was that you uh, went to study neuroscience at Brandeis University, USA in 1995, which, from what I understand, ignited a passion uh, for the human mind and its relationship to the brain. And then, well, let me not spoil the rest of the story. From there, it, it gets very interesting indeed. So can you say something about your upbringing and, and, and the your trajectory through your career? Okay, well, um, yes, so actually I uh, grew up uh, in Antwerp, Belgium, uh, not far from Antwerp, um, and my family is actually, Belgium is a very complicated country and you can see it in my family. Um, my mother is, so Belgium is divided in two parts, sort of, and in Brussels, which is a third part. Uh, so the northern part is the Fl uh, Flanders, is a Flemish part. Um, my dad is actually from Flemish origin. And uh, my mother is actually from the French part, from the southern part of Belgium. So, um, but my paternal grandmother was also uh, French speaking. And um, so my father grew up bilingual. Um, my mother uh, grew up in French and they, for when they got married, they moved to Antwerp for my dad's work. And so I grew up speaking French at home and uh, Flemish in school. And because in Belgium, there are quite some tensions between the two communities um, and things are even more complicated because historically French was considered the language of the elite. Um, so even in the Fle French Flemish part, Flemish people who were from the elite would speak French, actually. And um, so there are a lot of complicated still today in Belgium, a lot of tensions between the French and the Flemish. And it has also to do with this whole elite thing um, that, you know, a lot of Flemish people feel that they have been oppressed by the French because even the Flemish elite were actually speaking French at home. And so you can see this whole thing is, was also there in my family and there were this whole complicated um, mechanisms going on <clears throat> that were not, you know, were above me, where, where, where I, I had nothing, you know, I just had, it was inherited from my family, you know, from my parents, from my grandparents. Um, and so uh, in school, 
of course, I went to a nice, good Catholic girls' school uh, in the center of the city, and we had religion classes. And there, um, you would hear uh, teachings that um, uh, you know everybody should be equal and everybody should love everyone the same way. And I could very quickly see that what I heard in school and what I heard from religion classes was not really the same as what I would see in reality. And I started you know, to get very interested into what's going on here. Uh, also the, the, the Catholic religion was also something that I, one way I was drawn by it. I, I, I have not been traumatized by Catholicism or whatever, but you know, there was also this whole concept of you are everything you do, whatever you do, you are bad anyway. So we needed to go to confession. And when um, the whole class had to go to the priest and we had to say what we had done wrong. And then I said, I, well, I don't know what I have done wrong last week. And they said, you must have done something wrong because everybody has done something wrong. And, and, and so I invented actually, um, you know, I invented stories to please the priest and then I would lie actually. And so, <laughs> you know, it was this whole, all those complications I started to, you know, wonder what's what this all about. And so when I was an adolescent, um, I started to go to the local library and and get books about Buddhism. I got very interested in Buddhist Buddhism, but of course the books in the local library about Buddhism, there are not so many of them and they don't go very deeply, but I was, you know, this idea of Buddhism, it seemed something different, another way of looking at things. They didn't talk about a God who was deciding about everything and, and, and that there were the injustices could be explained by karma. Um, whereas how I would see it is, you know, in the Catholic way was you get born and then yeah, there are injustices. Some kids get sick, some others don't get sick. I also um, had my sister who got very sick when she was young. She had a, a very bad cancer. Um, and so I've spent a few years um, going in and out uh, of the hospital, seeing my parents very worried about my sister who might die because it was a very advanced cancer. Um, and um, so, and, and then those other kids who were there in the hospital too, they would end up dying. And, and my sister, she healed, she got completely cured. It was considered some sort of uh, spontaneous uh, healing so my sister is still there she has a family now and she's uh, very happy and so um, how come there are so many injustices that you know some kids really suffer and they die my sister didn't what did she do to, to deserve to, to live um, and I saw all those kids suffering and, and, I, and, 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 and I saw my family suffer of course uh, I saw my sister suffer um, and, and it was, you know, I started wondering what, what is all this thing with, with suffering and, and what happens. And, and I started getting interested in, you know, what's the mind and what goes on in, how does it function? What's, what happens in my brain when, I, when, when I'm thinking about things and, and when I feel things, what, what happens exactly? How does that work? And then I was actually very lucky um, when I finished high school, actually my dad could um, move to the US. Well, he moved to the US for his work. He was transferred there for a few years. 
and my parents gave me the opportunity to be able to study in an American university instead of going to a Belgian uh, university. And I thought, oh yeah, I want to see something else because Belgium is a very small country, very complicated. And I wanted to, you know, I think at that age, many young children, well, students then, they want to see the world. And, and then I thought, okay, let's try it, let's go for it. And so I, last minute, very last minute, applied for American universities, had no idea how the system worked there. Um, and then ended up, going, ended up going to Brandeis, which was actually a, a university, which is a Jewish university. And so it was really, for me, when I went there, the world opened up. I met, I met people from all over the place, from all different kinds of religions, and not from Buddhist, not Buddhist, but any other religion. I, I met people from, from and we, we became friends. And um, and then I, I, I had the chance to study, to major in neuroscience and take neuroscience classes. And, and that was really, I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting to try to understand how, how our mind functions, what is my mind exactly? What is my brain, what is consciousness? Um, so I started reading books also trying, you know, written by scientists, of course, first, uh, who were actually saying um, that uh, we, the mind is actually our brain. Uh, there are actually quite some books that have been written about this, uh, how, you know, this materialistic view of, of ourselves. And I, even though I loved the studies, I really loved it um, after, two years, I realized, you know, I did a little research with a professor also, and I realized I don't see myself going into research and spending, you know, years studying one specific subject uh, of neuroscience, even though I really love it. I want to do something more concrete. And so after two years, um, I took the very difficult decision to come back to Belgium to go to medical school because obviously medical school in Belgium is um, is nearly free if you compare it to uh, the US um, and uh, and because it's long studies yeah my parents would also say well if it's to study medicine you better do it in Belgium so I did come back to Belgium to go to medical school with this idea. After that, I'll do neurology or psychiatry uh, because I really want to continue to, 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 to study the mind um, and to, to, to try to understand how it works. Um, because, uh, and, and my idea was if I can understand how it goes when someone is sick, when someone is suffering in his mind has a mental illness, then maybe I will also understand how it goes when someone is not sick, how the normal mind works. Because if you understand illness, then maybe you understand, um, you know, normal functioning of the mind. And so that's how I ended up uh, back in Belgium in medical school. I must admit, I had my cultural shock coming back to Belgium instead of when I went to the U.S. because the world had been big in the U.S. and then suddenly I came back to something very that I knew already is something very, um, uh, how do you say, um, yeah, so something that I knew um, that in, in, in with people, you know, I went to a Flemish university, the, the University of Louvain, Catholic University of Louvain. Um, it's a very beautiful university. Um, it's a very old university, but everyone there is Flemish because it's all taught in Flemish. So I was back with only Flemish people. 
uh, all people from with a Catholic background, although people don't go to church anymore, but we were all from the same culture, basically. And um, so for me, this, this discovering of the world was, you know, and it was quite hard to, when I came back, I had, uh, it, it was not easy for me for a while. But then uh, when I started doing clinical rotations and, and working in hospitals um, in all kinds of different specialty first, because as a student, you rotate in all different specialties and then you make your decision what specialty you want to do at the, in the last year. Um, so back then medicine was seven years in Belgium and I could start in the second year because I was, you know, uh, all the courses I had had in the US I had, were the same than in the first year. So I could start in the second year. Uh, and so in the seventh year, I, 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 I started doing rotations in psychiatry and, and it was like, for me, when I started doing, even just being in a hospital, I was like, okay, I'm glad I did this because this is what I want to do. I want to work with patients. I want to, um, to help them and, and, and by helping them also understand the world better uh, <laughs> by talking to people who are actually in, in, in a difficult part of their life when they are, you know, they are, they are having health issues. Um, and um, I actually was very, I really liked other specialties too. Um, I especially enjoyed uh, surgical rotation. Um, because there you have to be very quick and decide very, you know, the adrenaline goes very high sometimes and, and you have to be very concentrated. Um, but um, yeah, and I, I like family uh, practice also. And, um, but I, I, I decided to go for psychiatry because the thing is with psychiatry, we don't have much, we actually don't have um, technical uh, tests. You know, we don't have CT scans or, x-rays they can be sometimes useful to ex to exclude certain pathologies certain physical pathologies but you know the main basis of mental health diagnosis is when by talking to people my main tool is is dialogue is dialoguing with people and so creating contact with them and so that's um and so when I started doing, you know, my clinical rotation in psychiatry, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. And so here I am, I still am. Um, I, uh, I ended up, um, so the residency is five extra years. So I did five years uh, of residency. Uh, and then when I was about 30 years old, um, I became a psychiatrist and I started to work in what I enjoy the most is working with people who suffer from chronic um, psychotic problems or schizophrenia. Uh, I try not to use the word schizophrenia too much because it's very loaded, very stigmatizing for uh, people. People are very afraid when they hear, oh, you work with schizophrenia, schizophrenic patients, you are very, um, you must be very scared, it must be very dangerous and it's not dangerous at all. Uh, uh, I actually, yeah, I, I feel as safe as if I would do any other job. And, um, and so, yes, so I've been doing the job that I love for ever, ever since actually. And now, right now I work in a very small hospital in Brussels, probably one of the smallest hospitals in, in Belgium. 
because we only have 30 beds. Um, and, uh, and I use the whole Belgian complication because I'm a bilingual myself. I am one of the few exceptions in Belgium. Actually, in Belgium, you're either French speaking or Flemish speaking, and you don't really speak the other language very well. I speak both languages equally well. Um, and that's, that's actually in the past, I would hide it. I would not dare to tell my Flemish friends that I spoke French at home. Uh, now I tell everyone that I'm bilingual and I, uh, I use this Belgian complication. It's actually a very big advantage in Brussels um, where I also speak English because Brussels is a very international uh, community. There are many nationalities in Belgium, in Brussels, sorry. And so um, I actually feel very happy there. Um, to be talking to people from all kinds of different cultures, all different languages, and, um, and yeah, who suffer from psychotic problems and um, trying to help them the best that I can um, by dialoguing with them. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, so fascinating. There's a few things I'd like to ask you about there. But before we go back, the Brussels Night Hospital is the one, is the hospital you're referring to. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's called, we call it Brussels Night Hospitals uh, because there have been publications about our hospital and in English we use that word, but if you look that up, in, you will not find the name and the address of the hospital because it has a Flemish name. It's called uh, Psychosocial Centrum Sint Alexius uh, in Brussels, but it sounds better in English to say the Brussels Night Hospital because it's a night hospital. So people stay there for the night and in the daytime, the idea is that it's not, it, even though it's called a hospital, the idea is to do psychosocial rehabilitation. So keep people as much as possible in the city, in the community. So to have, to help them to find um, uh, activities to do in, not separated from the rest, like an asylum was in the past, you would put, they would build asylums, psychiatric asylums outside in the countryside, far from the communities, hidden from the communities. And actually we do the exact opposite in Brussels. We actually try to put our patients as much as possible in the community uh, with in the end finding a place to live where they feel good and safe um, and, and, and that they will not lose it because sometimes our patients lose their, you know, lose their apartments or whatever. And so uh, they get discharged when they have a place to, to go there and to, to go to and live. Um, and then we continue to actually, we continue to help them even though they are not hospitalized anymore, um, but they are in the community. We continue for many of them, we continue to, to give them some help in one way or another. Hmm. You mentioned that it's been, uh, there have been papers referring to or, or written up about Brussels Night Hospital as, as it's called. And yeah, so it's quite, I think quite a well-known a hospital internationally for, for being so small and it's working there has afforded you a lot of very interesting and unique clinical experiences um, mm -hmm. which perhaps we'll, we'll return to. Um, I had a couple of questions about what you said this national complexity the Brussels complication uh, the, the, sorry uh, Belgium complication that you mentioned there you brought that up um, purely to, to explain your being bilingual is there more to say about that saying you'd inherited this cultural or national complexity uh, in your childhood uh, home. What are the implications of that? Well, <laughs> so, yeah, actually, to be very honest, actually, and, and I have, you know, I have 
many friends who who have I have some friends who have same similar background as I do. Um, it, it actually our ancestors on the Flemish side, uh, even for me on the Fle French side also, um, were from in the past from the Belgian elite. Uh, Belgium used to be one of the richest countries in the world at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Uh, I think along with the UK, we were similarly, you know, extremely rich because we have, we had coal, uh, we had a lot of coal, and um, of course we had the colony of, of uh, Belgian Congo. And so um, my ancestors were actually the ones who were having, you know, who were in the big companies, um, not, I don't have ancestors who went to Cong Congo, who colonized or whatever, but um, who, who were in the industrial revolution, yes. And so of course there was this industrial revolution in the, 18, in the 19th century. And, and um, my ancestors were part of that um, industrial revolution. So there is this, and in, 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 so they, they, they would speak French because they were part of this, of this elite and schools were in French, universities were in French, even though they were on the Flemish, uh, on the Flemish uh, part of the country. Um, and so um, today, my generation has sort of inherited this thing of, you know, we are not the elite anymore, <laughs> which I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, but we still have those expectations from our education, you know, to want to, you know, these expectations of having to stay within the same type of, of um, uh, people who have had the same type of education as we have, and and uh, and so and going to a school in Flemish where many people are not from this type of background, and so uh, as a child we could feel this pressure, those expectations, and the world was changing, and so how do you reconcile things you have received from 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 your parents and your family in in the world that is changing? Uh, you know, to, to, to it, it was not easy and it was, it, it still is something we don't really talk much about. So um, I still feel a little uncomfortable talking about this right now. Um, but on the other hand, this is the reality, how, 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 things, how things are and it made who I am. And so I'm, I'm very sensitive to very complex situations because um, when I hear, you know, certain situations, the bad guys are this and the good guys there, reality is always very nuanced and very gray. And I think thanks to my, to my, you know, my own, um, uh, the things that I've lived myself, uh, it really, it really helps me to nuance things and, and to understand that sometimes things are not as they seem. Things are not as black and white as they seem. There is a lot of gray, um, a lot of complexity in the world. And, and, and okay, I have my specific background, but uh, I think many people have very, you know, complex and, and specific uh, backgrounds, which can explain certain behaviors sometimes, which people would judge and say, oh, that's not good. That's uh, that's being this or that. And, and actually, when you really understand, and, and that's maybe also why I really um, like the work that I do is really try to understand why do people behave in a certain way and not another way, because if you start digging and asking questions and really listening to what people say, then things start to make more sense. Uh, 
in the way they they, they behave. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to get into your clinical experience a little later, which you're being uh, characteristically modest about. Uh, but I think that's perhaps clear. Uh, but we'll get into that. Um, I don't know if this is a redundant question. But what do you think it was about psychiatry? When you were doing your placements in medical school? What was it about psychiatry that really captured your uh, imagination and captured your interest. You, yes, you had an interest in, uh, in neuroscience and the brain and etc., the mind and so on from uh, before, but that doesn't necessarily track directly into working with actual patients in a psychiatric context. So, what was it about those early exposures to psychiatry that so attracted you? Uh, I think when I see. When I contrast how uh, I decided not to go into neuroscience, uh, even though I really loved the theory about it and, and reading articles and, and discussing and having courses about it, I had the, um, this idea that doing too much of that uh, and going, because of course, if you start studying neuroscience in the end, it's to go to go into research, uh, do a PhD, postdoc, whatever, and, and I really go into research. And I was a little bit afraid that uh, I would, it would become too much theoretical and not enough into, you know, into reality, into how things are, how things are really going. And, um, and when I, started you know doing clinical rotations of course i didn't start with psychiatry we we, we start in general hospital um uh, no the, my first real uh, rotation was with a, um, a gp was uh, at a private uh, doctor's family doctor and i already really loved the way that he the contact with people and their families you know um, the doctor knows his patients for ages he has seen them as kids and growing up as adults and he knows the parents and the uncles and he knows the whole family and there is this whole relationship with with patients um, that dimension i really um, that was something that i really wanted to to go into and so when i started um, my first uh, psychiatry my first day in psychiatry was actually in, in a ward in a psychiatric hospital um, where there were many people suffering from psychosis, from um, psychotic problems. And, um, and actually seeing that those people, actually, I really was touched by them. They were, I still am actually, the, um, they, they, they have very strange experiences which it's hard for me to relate to and hard for anyone to relate to. But they, they have this sort of, I don't know, I think it's very touching. And the problem is many of them have also lost contact with their families because their language that they use is so strange um, that many of them are, are sort of rejected by their families, are rejected by society. And, uh, and they actually, and it, 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 we shouldn't exclude them from society because they have, they have in their own ways also very interesting things to bring into society. And um, it's, it's actually, yeah, I think maybe in psychiatry, this way of trying to, to, to create contact with people, to, to create relationships, to 
we are human beings and, and we are not separate entities. And maybe in, in, the, uh, in the other medical specialties, um, we look too much at the problem, but we forget the human who is behind the problem. We, I have spent uh, in my rotations in, 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 in internal medicine, you know, the doctors would spend days looking at um, x-rays, looking at blood samples, blood tests, and I've been trying to find diagnosis and what's the best treatment. But then, oh, we only have five minutes left to rapidly go and talk to the patient and tell him you have this and this and this, and now you need to do this exam and then, and then hurry up to go to, and we didn't have time to speak with people, to talk to people. And I think it's in talking to people that you learn the most, I think. Uh, it helps the patients, but it helps me too. It's, it's in both ways. It's, it's, um, uh, I learn a lot from every patient contact that I have. Uh, and it's in the dialogue that I learn the most. Of course, technical tests are useful, but they should stay just the technical test. And the, the main focus of our, our job should, be, should still, stay, still be to talk to people and to talk to patients and to listen to them um, because they have a lot, a lot, a lot to say that sometimes they don't, many times they don't dare to tell their doctors because they are afraid that, you know, doctors will think they're crazy or something. Uh, and so lots, lots of people withhold a lot of useful information to their doctors because uh, of that. And, and in psychiatry, as we don't have any other way, we need to use this tool and try to make people talk and try to make, to listen, you know, we really need to listen and make them feel comfortable so they can really share what, what's going on and, and where they need help and that's really what I want what I love to do it's really learning in the relationships we have with people in the contact we have with people and and not just looking at tests or doing clinical studies where you haven't seen all those people who participate in the studies and you haven't talked to them and you don't really know you know this whole standardization of things is something I have difficulty with I, I, I prefer much more to listen to because every experience is different um, and, 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 and that's so amazing, so wonderful. No one has exactly the same experience and we all have different, uh, there, there are so many ways we can live our lives. Um, and so I think I'm in a very privileged position. I, I, that's why I really love my job. Uh, mm -hmm. mm, fascinating. And uh, your, you mentioned before you, your interests uh, in religion and uh, sparked there at an early age also. I wonder if we could follow that thread a little bit, understand that you've, you've explored several different uh, religious uh, traditions, at least intellectually, and uh, have quite some interest in Buddhism and meditation. And in fact, readers, uh, we're readers. <laughs> if anyone's reading this, that, then really, that's amazing because we don't write this down. But anyway, uh, listeners, viewers of this podcast will no doubt be familiar with Dr. Nita Chanatsang, who has been interviewed here uh, three times. Uh, remarkable uh, Tibetan medical doctor, as well as a spiritual teacher, actually guru in the Tibetan Buddhist system. And uh, of course, he, you met uh, Nita Chanatsang some years ago and uh, are now co-teaching with him. He recognized your clinical experience and of presumably the wealth of options he could have chosen from, uh, he asked you to co-teach uh, with him his uh, counseling course. He's training uh, 
councillor is in the sort of mix or meeting of actually not a mix actually a meeting of Tibetan medical and religious ideas about the personality and about psychology and mental health and so on with the Western medical uh, model of psychiatry which, which you bring and this is very interesting uh, I think quite unique training going on it's been going on for for some time now training counselors and and you're the uh, the lead of that it's, you're you're the leader of that of that program really remarkable actually so anyway that's the end though so uh, could you f follow that thread for us a little bit of your interest in in that side of things how did how did i come to get into buddhism or how did i come to meet dr nida or well i presume one follows the other um okay. <laughs> so yes um so it started when as an adolescent i would go and get books from the library on buddhism and then it continued uh, as in my interest in neuroscience when I, I, I was in, in Brandeis. Um, and, uh, and then back then in Brandeis, I wouldn't read much about Buddhism, Buddhism yet. Uh, I would read neuroscience books and I would have discussions on religion with my friends about Judaism, about Islam uh, mostly, and about, of course, the Christian religion. And uh, we would have very interesting debates, which would last uh, the whole night. Or you know, <laughs> it was really, you know, it was a very intellectually very stimulating time. And then uh, at one point, I think it was right after I came back from the U.S. Uh, I, I read, I started, um, I found a book of Mathieu Ricard and his father. I don't know how it's translated in English. Uh, I'm sure it's translated in English. Uh, the, the monk and the philosopher would be the French title, Le Moine et le Philosophe. And um, so, yeah, Mathieu Ricard is this famous French Buddhist monk. Um, and so in this book, he discusses with his father how he came to become a Buddhist monk. So his father is a famous French philosopher who is an atheist, uh, who was an atheist because now he passed away. And so they, they went together in the Himalayas and they had this whole dialogue that they recorded and then published it in a book. And that's what made Mathieu Ricard famous um, after this book was published. And uh, of course, it talks about a lot about Western philosophy, Western way of looking, and then the Buddhist way of, of, of looking. And to me, it was, you know, when I read that book, I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting because it's about the mind and how Western, Western philosophy looks at this. And so they talk a lot about the Greek philosophers um, and then Descartes and whatever. Um, and, and so, and then Mathieu Ricard explains the whole Buddhist, you know, his whole idea of how why he became, uh, he came in, encountered Buddhism and, and became a Buddhist, even a Buddhist monk. Um, and so I thought this book was really fascinating. And uh, I started reading more about Buddhism after that, reading that book and, and started reading all kinds of books. Um, uh, and it took, yeah, it stayed on an intellectual level for a long time for me. I'm also, I like to, you know, to, to feed my, my brain <laughs> with intellectual stuff. So um, I would read a lot uh, on Buddhism, but 
going to meditate, it didn't even occur to me to do that. Um, I didn't even have the idea to do that. I also didn't know anyone who was Buddhist uh, back then. And then um, a few years later, I, meanwhile, I was married and I already had two children, I think, maybe three, no, three children. I had already my three children. So yeah, it's quite a while later. Um, I had um, met some friends, uh, well, I had made some friends who are still my very, very good friends. Um, and uh, their, uh, their wife, uh, she's actually from Tibetan origin. And thanks to them, I got to meet the first uh, Tibetan guru ever. <laughs> and he came to dinner uh, to, our, to, our, um, to our house. And um, to me, it was, I was like, oh my God, the, the problem is that this, this Tibetan uh, guru uh, is from Tibet and doesn't speak any other language than Tibetan and Chinese. So our friends had to translate uh, to be able to have the communication. But I felt like when, when I had met that, that, um, that person, I was like, oh my God, it's like I have met Jesus or something. Uh, it's, it seems very crazy, but you know, it's, it's like, I can't, when after we had met him, it was like, now I can understand why, you know, sometimes in history, there have been certain people like Jesus, where people would leave everything to follow him. Uh, because we could really feel this energy coming from this this person in in how he could even though we had a big language barrier how he could see and understand everything what was going on in the house um he didn't say much but what he said was just to the point and very you know very and in back then i read had just had read books about buddhism but that's it i had absolutely no experience in and i started talking about my patients and i told him you know you say meditation uh, should be um something uh that everyone can do but can you do that with people who suffer from uh from psychotic problems uh because i've read in papers that it shouldn't be done with people who suffer from psychotic problems and then he actually told me, but you know what? You should learn to meditate. And then once you meditate, you just go and, and meditate with your patients. And then you tell, then you see how it happens because you will find a way to meditate with people with psychosis. Uh, you'll find a way that's good for them because it's everyone can meditate, but we shouldn't do all types of meditation just like that. We should find a good way to, to meditate. And so that's how, you know, the seed was planted to start to to meditate, I've never seen him anymore because now he's back in in, in Tibet. Um, Do you remember his name? Uh, yes, but I don't know if I can give his name for my uh, for my friend's uh, sake, for my friend's protection, because okay, you know it's it's quite. I I, I don't know because I know when he came to to Europe, uh, he also had to. Um, to, to come as a layperson, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to leave the, the country. Uh, and, and so I don't know if I can just say his name. Uh, maybe if my friends give me the permission, I'll give you his name, but um, I know he's quite famous in, in China. Um, but anyways, he, 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 he was, yeah, he, he it, it really, you know, I was really, really, I still am very impressed when I think of him. Um, and so um, now um, 
so then I, I, I started, you know, it took a while before I started to go uh, to, to go to a retreat and I started going to retreats uh, in France um, to uh, another um, Tibetan guru for which I won't say the name either. I learned a lot. I learned shamatha meditation basically with him. But then there were some problems. Um, there were some problems and so I ended up, you know, there was problems with money and whatever. So um, I, I, I had my share of a little bit disappointments. Um, and so I stopped going uh, there, but I'm very grateful from what I learned there because it, it really helped me to learn to start to meditate, to simple meditations, shamatha meditations. Um, and then it's only later on that, um, actually just before the pandemic that uh, I went to a retreat organized by Dr. Nida and, um, in, in France, in, in, near Paris. And that's how I met Dr. Nida. And because I had had a, a little bit of a negative experience uh, before, uh, I, I just went there thinking, you know, we'll see. Uh, and then when I met Dr. Nida, I was like, oh my God, this is, uh, I, I really got along with him because I could really feel, even though he's not a Western doctor, he is a doctor. I could really feel that he really knows how to talk to patients, how to talk to people in general. Uh, you could really feel his clinical experience is, is really strong, uh, even stronger than mine, I, I believe, um, because he really knows how to, how to talk to people in a way that makes them really feel comfortable and really feel listened to. And I was really impressed because even doctors around me, I don't have many colleagues who are that, you know, who have that kind of, yeah, clinical. Actually, the first thing I was, I, I was impressed with Dr. Nida was his 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 doctor, you know, his doctor identity on how he how he relates to to people, and I was like, oh my God, this is an example I should follow. You know, I can become better doctor by doing by doing like Dr. Nida by copying him. Um, and, and, and then, of course, he, then he started his retreat and it was not, absolutely not about uh, Soa Rikpa, it was about uh, um, utognitic uh, things and, 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 and there also the way he talks about spirituality in a way as a doctor, well, of course, for me as a doctor, this is just amazing because he really makes this metaphor of, of the Buddha being the doctor and, and, and and actually, to me, of course, it speaks a lot. This language is the language that I'm very familiar with because I am a doctor myself and I have patients and I have medication. And, and so when he says, when he really relates that as a doctor's way of, of doing things, I was like, oh my God, this is really, this is really what I was looking for. And, and, um, and, and then, um, and then the pandemic started. <laughs> and so the next retreat that he was going to do in France was canceled. And, uh, but then instead he started um, this online SOA Rigpa course. And then I thought, okay, uh, I, I, I'm a psychiatrist. I already have everything I have. I have already a full practice, but I'm just going to follow the SOA Rigpa course just to know more about it. And who knows, it might help certain of my patients who are very anti-Western medicine, anti-medication. Maybe I, if I can find ways with you know, more natural ways to help them, then that's going to help more people. So it's, it's good to have you know, those different tools. And so that's how I, 
I, I got into this uh, Soharikpa online course, but really, you know, before that, I had never heard of Soharikpa before. And, um, and then uh, as the course went along, um, yeah, I think we started to get each other, to get to know each other a little better. And then he asked me to teach a few courses at the end of that first year. And then um, it went so well that we ended up, uh, well, he ended up asking me to help him to, to create this uh, counseling course where we include Swarikpa and Western uh, ways of looking at, you know, of helping people and, and also Buddhist ways, of course. Um, and, and, and I think it's just been amazing up till now. Um, Sometimes a little stressful because I'm not used to be like that in the spotlights, but um, but I see that it's 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 really interesting because it's everything that I love. It's all together. In the past, I would see all those things as separate. Me being a doctor, me being, you know, the 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 Buddhist uh, philosophies. You know, all those things were separate, and then now it's all coming together. In um, and I think it's really it's really great. It's really wonderful. Very interesting indeed. Gosh, there's so there's so many things that um, I'd like to ask you about uh, from this point, but perhaps perhaps one question about what you've said. You mentioned that there are certain things you saw in Doctor Nida that, um, as a as a clinician yourself, you respected a great deal and thought, ah, yeah, you know, this is um, I recognize that skill set. Of course, in a, in a slightly different context, um, but nonetheless, cert certain skills are the same. And indeed, there are even things that, in looking at him, you felt you could learn from through emulating. I'm curious what those were. If you could be more specific, perhaps, on what 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 is the difference with clinical experience, as say a doctor, and the way one talks to somebody. That's your job is talking to people and listening to people. A big part of your job. Can you say something about that skill set when one spends all one's day? doing that what what does that give you what are the markers of that skill set and also i'm curious in dr nida and these are two perhaps rather different questions what was it that you saw that you might like to emulate or you could also learn from well there is first of all the fact that he doesn't want to be put on a throne and he wants to be you know in the middle of people and be at the same level and this idea if i'm on a the throne then, then i'm alone up there and, and I'm not, so people, there will be a barrier between me and the other people. Um, and I think we should be careful for that in Western medicine because as doctors, sometimes we, uh, many doctors like to be, you know, the doctor on, you know, so that's why I always, I don't really know if I should be called doctor or not because for certain people it's useful, for other people it, it scares them away a little bit because yeah, then I'm too high above them and, and, and that's not how I feel at all and I don't think Dr. Nida doesn't feel above people either um, <clears throat> so, that, so that's one thing uh, another thing is the way that he would deal with what we call in um, western psychiatry we would call psychosomatic problems um, there was this, this, this guy who was there at the retreat um, who had uh, suddenly who had some sort of you know, problem and someone came to ask uh, Dr. Nida for help. And I went with him because we thought that he might have a physical problem, um, maybe a heart attack or something. And I could really very quickly see he, he had some sort of panic attack. And I think Dr. Nida also saw that. Uh, and the thing is that um, Western, 
Western doctors would react, oh, don't worry, because it's not a heart attack. So don't worry, just, just um, it's, it will go away by itself. But if you say that to someone who is really not feeling well, it might just increase his feeling of unease. And, 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 and so the way that Dr. Nida would be with that person, he would you know, take his time to really listen to him, uh, to examine him, look at his tongue, feel his pulse, and, and, and then use a whole set of words that you know explains his 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 feelings uh saying i don't remember exactly what what he said but it made sense for you talked about energies or whatever and it made really sense for the for the guy and just the fact that dotanina was just really listening and this guy really you know his level of stress went down very quickly and, and he could really relax uh anyways and uh, the, the few days after, every day, Dr. Nina would take a little time and go to that guy asking him, how are you doing today? You know, even though he was well then, but just the fact that he didn't forget what had happened the day before and he went to check on him and, and not forget about him. So this guy was like, oh, I'm important. You know, this, 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 this guru sees me and he knows I'm there and he's there listening to me. And so this guy was... Actually, I think he, he came back from, I don't know, but that he came back from that retreat being very, you know, healed in a way because, you know, someone like Dr. Nida had been very attentive to him and, and be very nice and non-judgmental, non-judging at all, actually. Uh, and so, um, so I thought, you know, because of course we see many pe people who have what we would say psychosomatic problems and they're usually thrown away as being, oh, it's just in your head, just forget about it. And, uh, and, and people are there and then they feel frustrated because they do have really, you know, they do have all kinds of symptoms and they don't feel well. And then the fact that they get, you know, pushed aside as it's all in your head, don't worry about it. It makes this frustration even bigger. And I think that's also one of the reasons so many people are, um, are quite negative towards Western doctors because they have had already those experiences before. Uh, and Dr. Nida takes every, everything seriously, what people tell him or symptoms that he sees and, and um, in a very humane way without being you know, the expert who will know better than the patient. Uh, and so I think that's, that's really, yeah, that's really, and, and by being like this with, with people, how this, in say has a healing effect on people because they feel that they are there and, and they're looked at and you know they are cared care someone is caring about them is really caring about them i've heard you say that the quality of the relationship with the therapist for example um or the or the psychiatrist or the counselor however we want to want to call it is a, a really rather large part of the potential for recovery or healing yeah. I, I believe it's actually the most important part so we already know from studies in psychotherapy where they had been comparing psychoanalytic therapy with cbt and other kinds of therapies um, and it's always the same the results are always the same there is no psychotherapy that is superior to another and what really makes a difference is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient. Um, so it's that quality that will be the best prognostic fast factor. Uh, so the better the relationship you have with 
the therapist or the healer or or the counselor the the more chance you will get better because of this therapy so it's it's for me it's one of the very uh, important things is to invest in this uh, relationship uh, as a doctor because yes i'm a doctor i'm a psychiatrist uh, i prescribe medication but i know it's if i would just if it was just a robot distributing the exact medication that's needed patients would not get as well uh, than if there was you know than if it was me with my relationship with them that really makes the biggest difference um, for, 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 for the patients. Um, uh, it, it's really, and it's, you can see like that placebo studies say that a lot, it's really the quality of the relationship between the doctor and the patient that will have the most significant uh, difference to help someone. I can see that also patients who don't trust me when I prescribe them medication, medication will not work very well and if they really do trust me medication of course it's not always helping or not all but it will help somehow there will be somehow uh, people will will get better and 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 so that's also why i'm i'm a very big fan of the attachment theory uh, because um uh, so the attachment theory which really states that as human beings we need to feel connected with other people in order to feel, you know, to feel good. So it's not only about food and, and sexual reproduction. It's mostly about attachment, uh, how human beings, you know, relate to each other. It's really, really important. And so um, as a doctor, I, I really try to invest in this attachment, uh, the secure attachment, uh, as we would say in, in the West, where people feel safe, but where they feel cared for, you know, where there is some unconditional, non-judgmental non way of, of relating to them. And the more you can, you know, you can invest in such a relationship, the better, the more healing effect it will have on, on the patient. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, you're mentioning uh, attachment theory there. And, uh, you know, it seems that continuing education is something that you've, you've engaged in a lot in your career. You're also, from what I understand, family and systems therapist. Uh, which is itself a multi-year training and you specialized if i understand during that process in attachment theory is that, is that correct well yes actually um so uh i got trained uh, in family therapy at the uh, french university of louvain which is another university of louvain we have two universities of louvain in belgium because you're a complicated country um but uh so, and I was trained by uh, Edith Tillmans. She's retired now. Um, she's very famous in the French world. I don't really think she's known in the, in the English world, um, but she's an, an amazing, she was actually one of the pioneers of the family therapy in, in the Belgium, Swiss, uh, maybe also French world. Um, she also has a special uh, background because she's actually Flemish. Uh, her mother tongue is Flemish, but she, you know, she became famous in the French world and not and much less in the Flemish world, which is quite funny. Um, and so I, I had the chance to be trained by her in her last year before she would retire. Um, and she's, you know, she also has this very strong clinical experience uh, with working with families. And uh, when I met her, she told me, well, you should, um, you should, you know, dig deeper into the attachment theory with working with families, because the attachment theory, 
at that time at least was much more about you know a child and his parents and it you know it stayed there about how a child relates to his parents or his primary caregivers but um, she made me read books and, 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 and dig into how we can apply all those things that we know about attachment theory, but in a clinical practice with working with patients and working with families. And so I'm very grateful to that, uh, to her about that, because it really made me think about how I was working uh, as a doctor, because I was already, back then I was still uh, a resident in psychiatry, but thanks to this, thanks to this, background from family therapy I could really invest into you know think about uh, how to create secure attachments in my consultations because I had never made the link of attachment theory which I already knew about but I had never thought of putting it in in a clinical setting and, and try to use it and uh, and so that I would be then the primary caregiver of my patient and the patient would be like the if you make the metaphor I'm like the parent and the patient is like the the, the child that I need to help and look after what his needs are and the, the needs of that patient are not necessarily the needs of another patient so really to be listening and, and trying to tune to into what what are the needs of that kind of person and not of that kind of person and of course even you also work with families because sometimes I also uh, see families although I wish I would see more families than that um, but um, when we also work with families how to make families feel safe enough and, and usually when families come and see a doctor the first time they don't know the doctor and they are quite paranoid and which is logical i'm paranoid too when i don't know a doctor <laughs> I, I want to check if that is that going to be a good doctor is he going to treat my son well or or is it some guy some you know and there are all those ideas about psychiatrists who seem a little crazy and and um so you can see when people come in, they are checking me out, <laughs> and 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 so and, and which is normal. And so, putting words on that and saying, I understand that you you know you want to know if I if I'm a good if I'm competent enough to help your to help your son or daughter, especially that because I work with people who suffer from chronic psychotic problems, they already seen many doctors before me, and so and they have been many negative experiences. So why wouldn't it be a negative experience again? So trying to find ways to make them feel at ease and feel them safe, to let, help them feel safe, because I know when, actually that's my first, that's my first goal is to help patients and family feel safe. Because when I know when they feel safe, the rest goes much more easy. Uh, I can help them much better than if they don't feel safe, then I should put all my energy into that first um because as long as they don't feel safe then whatever i propose they will not do it or they will do it but not believing in it and then stop it very quickly and not give a chance to do the things i propose to help them and so actually this will just block the whole thing if, if there is no trustful relationship with uh, and it's especially complicated with people who suffer from psychosis because they're already paranoid so they are they're already more paranoid than a regular person so i even have to do more efforts to you know to to help them feel safe because mm -hmm. there is more paranoia to you know <laughs> to indeed what have you learned about gaining that rapport that trust what are the if you were to boil it down perhaps it's not possible to boil it down but 
I'm wondering if we could extract something of the essence of, of this focus you've had on creating this relationship, understanding it as you do, um, not only in the context of clinical studies showing the effectiveness or the importance of the, of the rapport between the therapist and the patient, but also um, your, your understanding of attachment theory and, well, you've described it. What could we extract the essence of what you've learned or your current thinking on how to achieve that? Someone walks in the door. What, what are we going to see you doing very often or, or not doing? Well, now it's complicated because um, <laughs> we have the pandemic, so I cannot shake hands to patients, which I think is a pity because shaking hands is usually the first way of the way I shake hands in, you know, a sort of, you know, convinced way, but not forceful way. Um, those are, you know, it's small, small details. So not, not some, you know, sometimes people shake hands. It's a very weak hand. So I, I, I don't have that weak hand, but I also, some people, they squeeze so much that it nearly hurts. So I don't do that either. It's somewhere in between, but where I show that I feel confident when I shake hands. In, in, in when I shake hands and then I feel how the hands of the other person is, and I can feel how confident the person is. Uh, if it's, a, it, it gives me, and also looking at how the person looks like, is that person, the way that person dresses um, gives me a lot of information, all the nonverbal things around someone and the way also the tone of his voice, the way he says hello or whatever, and then, then they, they come into the room, I make them sit down and, and then um, I will usually to make people, you know, at ease, I will try to say something about, you know, the weather, for example, I don't know, maybe in the UK it's the same as in Belgium, but that's like the national thing is we complain about the weather. So there's always a way to complain about the weather. And even if the weather is nice, sometimes then we say, oh, today is, and finally, we have a nice day today, so we should enjoy it. And so or say something about the football because of course that's the national if i can see it's someone who probably loves the football i say oh yeah we we won yesterday or you, you know try to find small things that i can see at what kind of interest does that person have maybe for football i will not say that to you know an older lady who doesn't really look like into football i will not say anything about football but and if I really don't know what to say, then I will say something about the weather, about the traffic, traffic jams, but something and try to make some little joke or something. That's also something Dr. Nina is really good at, is to tell jokes to make people feel at ease. Uh, I don't have his humor, but, but still I try to, you know, to say something small and funny and that they can relate to, ah, you know, that doctor is not that weird. She's not that such a weird psychiatrist. She also, you know, complaints about the uh, traffic jams in Brussels or the noise or whatever. Um, and so I try to, you know, and so that's also always a very important is to try really the first minutes to have someone already feel, okay, we can be normal here. We don't need to be complicated. We don't. Uh... And then of course I have patients who have all kinds of interests. Um, I have a patient, every time he comes to see me, he talks about the news. So I know I need to, to know stuff about the news because um, then he will start, oh, you know, and this and that. And then he talks about, and then I say, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and, and the Russians and the, and the pandemic and this. And, and then I, I, I relate to him because he's so interested about the news. And then 
once he hears that I know about the news too, and, 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 and that I say, oh yes, that's true, it's, it's, it's really not fun that now we have to stay inside again with the COVID and whatever. And then once all of that has been discussed, it's always some sort of ritual, then he starts to talk about his own, um, his own complaints because he's like, okay, the doctor knows the same thing about than me about the news so now i can start talking about my personal issues and then we can start talking about his personal issues because when you try to relate to, to 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 people to people's life you know interests and things like that then it's also it's going to help them to make them feel at ease and and, and start discussing um, what's going on with them and how how, how they feel actually uh, that's very interesting indeed. Um, I'm wondering about that ritual. Perhaps some, perhaps less experienced uh, clinicians might w worry uh, that one's wasting valuable consultation time in small talk. But you are recognizing the value of uh, investing in that so that what follows is so much more efficacious. That, that makes sense. Um, do you ever encounter a situation where a patient will attempt to camp out? in that sort of small talk to avoid addressing the issue, for example? Uh, do you find yourself having to circumvent that in any way? I'm curious about that. So what would you say to the clinician who says, well, I don't want to get too bogged down in small talk. Um, what if we never get to the main problem? And do you actually encounter a situation where you have to redirect the flow of conversation to, uh, to the issues at hand? Yes, actually, well, I, I think uh, it's always good to have small talk. Um, and of course, uh, and then it depends on the, on the patient. If you start to realize that he's trying to avoid the main subject, then I just at one point, I just ask, so uh, what are you here for today? Or how are you doing today? How are you doing? And then he will maybe sit, talk about something else. I say, okay, yeah, that's also very good. You already told me that, but now I really want to know how you are doing because I'm your doctor and I want to know how you are doing. But I think this, this preparation of the small talk ritual is, is good to make, help people feel at ease. And then for some people who are very, you know, who are stable, because of course I follow my patients for years. So it's not the same as when you're doing a real psychotherapy for, I don't know, a few sessions, a few months, and then that's it. It's going to be different. But for me, I, I, I follow my patients for years. Whether they do well or not, they continue to come and see me and consult me. And so when they're doing well, then there is a lot of small talk. Because why would I talk about problems if he's doing fine? Uh, it's going to make him, you know, the sick patient again. And I think sometimes talking about other things really makes him not always being have this label of the patient who is sick and, and not normal. And actually, in the beginning, I felt uncomfortable with that too. I was like, oh my God, I've studied for so many years and now I'm talking about recipes of, you know, bechamel sauce. I've had that once with my patient who asked me, doctor, please help me. I don't know how to make bechamel sauce. So I looked up on the internet and I found a very easy recipe for him, wrote it down on a paper and he was asking me questions and that was the consultation. And he was so happy, you know, he didn't need anything else. So I'm not going to then say, because I, see, I felt that he was doing well otherwise on a mental level. So I wasn't going to ask him other things than that. And then, so we have, we're just talking about, actually I talk about food a lot because I have patients with food 
you know, with health issues because they eat too much in, in, in an unhealthy way. So, and then I'm like, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm talking about food with my patients. Um, but then what the hell, if that's what they need to talk about, then let's, you know, they are the ones who, who decide. But if I really feel it's a problem because they are not going to talk about their problems and there is a problem, then, then I will, you know, I will dive into the question and just, you know, straightforwardly asking, okay, what's going on with you and how are you doing right now? Hmm. That's very interesting. You've talked there about how to establish that rapport in the opening moments of the of a consultation, and also you're you're talking about how that rapport looks on an ongoing basis. I'm curious what uh, if if this this might be an incorrectly framed question, but I'm curious what are easy ways to lose the trust. As the relationship progresses, are there easy or common mistakes that you think um, can be made that can result in losing the trust? Or are there key moments or key pivot points in a therapeutic relationship uh, where one it's make or break in terms of, of the trust that perhaps would be a place a, a clinician might put a foot wrong? Well, to me, it's very simple. It's not telling the truth or hiding the truth or minimizing the truth. Because even if you know the patient doesn't want to hear that, uh, doesn't like to hear the truth, at least when you tell the, the truth or, or how you see things, you know, because maybe I can be wrong sometimes, uh, but say how I see things in an honest way, I'm never going to lie to my patients. And I see that they really appreciate that. Even sometimes they get annoyed at me because I've said things they didn't want to hear they know that at least she's being honest to me. So if I say other things that they wanted to hear, they know that I mean it. So I'm, I'm never, never going to say something I don't mean to, to someone. And so, um, and I think, but that's in, in, in life also, if we realize someone hasn't been telling us really the truth or hasn't, have, has been hiding stuff to us, we will not trust that person anymore either, right? Um, even though afterwards they'll say, yeah, but I did that to protect you or whatever. We don't like it. We want to, you know, it's, it's, it's important to, you know, to remain authentic and, and just to, to say how, how, how we feel. And, and of course, I have those kind of discussions a lot with people who have, um, who, for example, smoke cannabis, cannabis in regular media, you hear all the positive things about it. But in my clinical practice, I only see problems with cannabis because cannabis is a high risk factor for psychosis. Um, and my patients, well, most of them smoke cannabis, especially the younger ones. The older ones, not so much, but the, the younger ones, all of them do. And so when I tell them, well, cannabis is not healthy for you and the best way you know, to help yourself is to stop smoking pot, then the you know, many of them don't like to hear that. And they say, yeah, but then, and then they try to find all kinds of uh, arguments why it's good anyways, because in the media, it is said it's medical, medicinal, and this and that. And then I keep saying, well, it might be for some people that it's good, but not for you. And, um, and, and so if your friends don't have problems, well, yeah, they are not sitting here with me, you know. They are not here in my consultation. They don't have psychosis, but you do have psychosis. So if your friends are really good friends, they should know that and should help you 
and maybe stop smoking when you are there, when you are around, because in a friendship, we're supposed to help each other. And if they know, it's like if you have an alcoholic friend, you're not going to start drinking in front of that person if you know he has a hard time get get away from, from the alcohol. So you, you find another way to, to, to help because he's your friend and you don't want him to, to drink again. And so same thing for for cannabis. And, and so I have a lot of discussions like that. And, and I have had patients who got very angry at me. They stood up and they say, I'm going to change. I'm going to another doctor. I don't want to speak you into you anymore. Uh, you are really a bad old fashioned traditional doctor. And then they slam with the door and they leave. And then two weeks later, they come back. <laughs> and then they say, okay, you might have been right, you know, because I have had this and that problem. And then they start to, and then I tell them, you know, instead of saying, okay, let's just stop cannabis right now, just try for a week or two weeks without cannabis and see what happens and, and see how your symptoms go. And then you find out by yourself. And so, and then by being always honest and not trying to be popular, because that's also, you know, I think many young people who start young clinicians, they will try to not be unpopular. And I have learned that that doesn't help I'm like, okay, if you don't like me, if I'm not popular, then that's it. I cannot change who I am and, and to dare to be unpopular. And, and that's one of the good things about uh, the training in family therapy is that you learn to be unpopular. <laughs> I mean, you learn to dare to be unpopular and not to please the other person. My job is not to please the other person. My job is to try to help that person with his problems that he's encountering right now. And so it, 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 and for someone young who's starting, who, is, who doesn't have much experience yet, it's difficult because you want to please your patients. You want, to, you want them to like you and, and, and you know, getting out of this, I want them to like me. It's more, I want them to know that what I want is, I want them to feel fine. And it's like also parents with children we shouldn't be popular parents. We should be good parents for our children. So if my child tells me, oh, uh, that's not nice uh, for let, I, I want to, you know, some adolescent who wants to go party and, and I tell him you have to be home at midnight. And he says, well, I want to come back whenever I want to. And if it's 3 a.m., then I want to be back at 3 a.m. Well, it doesn't make me popular to say you come back at 12 because I'm your mother yeah, but that's not nice. And why is that? And all my other friends can come back at three. And I say, I don't care about your other friends and their other parents uh, who let you go out for a longer time. I want you to be back at 12. And that's it. Well, then I don't like you anymore. Then I say, okay, then you don't like me anymore. And, and, and then, you know, but at the end, they respect you much more because they feel that you, you said those, you know, you say all those things because you care about them and you, you know there are certain risks associated with certain things and so you don't want those risks to happen and you want to protect them and so on the short term they might get very angry but on the long term you get more respect and, and they will listen to you much more because it comes from you and they, they know in the day that you tell them okay you can go back at 3 a.m then they know that you trust them well enough to do that and they will do everything to make it you know so I, I think, uh, and that's a confusion I think we also have in general society. Many parents, they want to be, you know, they don't want to have too much trouble with their children. And so they're trying to, to be the, the, the friend or the, but I think it's not possible because this, the parent is above and the child is underneath and we need to protect 
our, our, our child and we're our friends. We it's not our job to be well, of course, we'll have, try to help each other out, but it's not the same relationship with a friend because we're on the same level with a parent and a child or a doctor and a patient. It's an asymmetrical relationship and, and or a guru with a student. You know, it's, you have many asymmetrical or a boss with, a, with someone. So we have in society, we have many asymmetrical relationship and then you have symmetrical relationship where you have, you know, people on the same level and we should really, you know, depending on the type of relationship, um, it has its advantages. Uh, it's important to, you know, you have a response. That's why we say doctors have a responsibility. Our responsibility is to help and protect our patients. And so sometimes we need to say things that they're not going to like to hear. Yeah, very fascinating. That asymmetry, those asymmetries that you're pointing to, of course, have a function. They're functional. And, uh, Presumably, uh, being the friend of one's child and denying that asymmetrical dynamic uh, forces the child, in a sense, to uh, take care of themselves uh, in a way or, or form, uh, create their own boundaries and self-regulation uh, at perhaps a premature time. Eventually, presumably, that asymmetry gives way as the child grows, matures and internalizes the role you're playing and is able to set their own boundaries and regulate them themselves. They don't need the parent to do that anymore, but that's something that presumably they learn to do that through relating to the parent, actually outsourcing that role, you could say, uh, yeah. temporarily in their development. Is that fair to say? Well, their children are always going to try to follow some, some sort of example to follow. So it's either the parents or it's going to be the peers if the parents don't do it. And so then there's role models become the peers, but the peers, they don't have the maturity of the parents. They don't have the life experience of the parents. So you take more risks, then it can turn out fine, but it can also become problematic if you choose your peers who, you know, depending on the type of friends that you choose, um, uh, if they go and do dangerous things and you want you see them as role models well you'll do those you'll do those things too so i think it's really important that up to a certain age parents remain the role models the primary role models uh, the attachment figures the primary attachment figures but then there is this trustful relationship that builds up and then you trust your child more and more and you give him more and more responsibilities and then at one point he doesn't need you anymore because he knows himself what he can do and where the dangers are and uh, because certain parents also do the opposite they don't give any freedom to their children and then suddenly at 18 or 20 or whatever they they, they arrive in the adults world and they have never received any you know responsibility and then you can have the complete opposite reaction and they go to all kinds of crazy things because they have been held too much too strongly too strictly so i think it's it's very complicated as a parent first you need to protect your child because he depends completely on you but then over time you give him more and more responsibilities and more and more autonomy and more and more freedom in this space is different from one child to another certain children attain maturity much faster than others and and so how do you and that's this whole thing of attuning is as a parent really looking at what does that child need right now do i still need to protect him for that or not can i already trust him for that and and if you give that trust at one point before even the child asks for it you say okay i i understand i give you that trust you can do that 
then the child feels very proud that you trust him to do that. And so he will, you know, want to show you that he deserves this in, in, in really do the things as, as well as he can. So I think it's also important as parents to give freedom to our children, but, you know, and one child is not another. So, and then it's complicated when you have different children and, and their siblings and they have different personalities. And then the children say, it's unfair. You can do that. And I cannot do that yet. And at that age, this and that. And, so it's, and then it's always trying to find, you know, a way with, because of course, children are also very, patients also, they are very sensitive to the doctor being fair or not fair, um, especially in the hospital where they are in a community. When I make a decision and I say this patient, uh, sometimes I have to exclude patients from the hospital. For example, if someone has been dealing drugs in the hospital, uh, then I say, sorry, now you leave. Uh, yeah, but I don't have a house. Well, that's too bad. You knew you cannot deal drugs. And of course, I cannot tell that to other patients that they have been dealing drugs. And other patients here that I excluded the patient who have who has no house and he's now homeless. And then they say it's unfair. Why did you do that? And you know, there is there is this whole, and then you cannot say everything because you have medical secrecy. And so this whole thing about how when are things fair or not fair or everybody's equal, uh, you know, we are, not all, we are not always equal because we all have such different stories and how do you, how do you balance all those things? It's, it's um, not always easy. <laughs> when you talk like this and introduce all these different dynamics, it does uh, make me reflect on the importance of a certain, um, or at least the relevance of the therapist's own psychology and issues. Of course, we've known for some time, it's popular in consciousness, I think, as idea of transference and counter-transference. And it is possible, of course, for a therapist to be drawn into a kind of, uh, uh, should we say, um, unhealthy dynamic from both sides. The therapist can also be drawn into that dynamic and begin to buy into that dynamic and uh, participate in a sort of psychodrama intentionally with, with the patient, um, moved off if you want their center. And I expect that, that all, all the things you're saying, this tolerance for being unpopular, this uh, na navigating freedom uh, versus boundary function or care and compassion, these dynamics seem quite difficult to navigate and perhaps a vulnerability is, is the therapist's own psychology, their own psychological background, perhaps previous um, woundings or patternings that they may have encountered in, in themselves. I think that's something also that comes up in attachment theories, as you point out, the therapist is involved here. The therapist is uh, an active player in an active relationship here. Yeah. So I'm curious, and then I would like to ask you about um, hyper-religiosity. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about that. I know we've been talking for quite some time. How do you stay, uh, I suppose, for want of a better word, centered? How do you keep your center amidst the uh, tidal forces of not only your patient's psychology, but also your own psychology? Okay, so then I think, yeah, it's a very good question. I think, um, first of all, is to understand my own uh, difficulties that I have had in my life. Um, that I understand dynamics that I had. Um, 
that's why they also say they encourage if you are learning to uh, become a psychotherapist to also go into therapy yourself to understand your own personal dynamics i know i'm sensitive to certain things um and and uh and, and thanks to having been through all this self-reflection about myself and in this dynamic and that's also why i said in the beginning many things from our lives we have learned we have received from others i think if a child is is born you know as they say in buddhism you know we're born with bliss i think it's really true a baby is born with bliss well maybe during the pregnancy there is bliss and it can already change during pregnancy if there is already a lot of stress around but let's say at one point or another a baby in the beginning is is full of bliss but then we start to inherit all the projections of our environment uh, all the emotions uh, in, 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 in children and babies absorb all those emotions in, in, in the internalize them, right? We are like sponges and we internalize and then we start to believe it comes from us, but we actually inherited it from our parents and our families who they inherited it from their, from their parents. And, and then you can go like that back for generations. And then, so for, for example, when we talk about trauma and then we start to blame, oh, my parents, this and that, um, for, for many patients, it's complicated because they don't want to blame their parents because they love their parents, but they have been traumatized by their parents. And so it helps to say, well, my parents were actually victims of trauma by their parents who themselves were victims. You know, it's certain sorts of generations. So we stop blaming our parents because that's how they functioned. They didn't know how to do otherwise. And they had inherited it from previous generations. And so then it's okay, I, I still love my parents, even though they have hurt me and they have done you know, things that should have been better otherwise. But then how can I change things and understand those things so that I don't transmit them to my children anymore? Um, and, and so and I think that's the real healing, right? It's to, it's to be able to understand. So, and, and so when we talk about transference and counter-transference, um, I've had, situations where the counter transference was really high for me um, and then you know you see someone and you get really angry at that person and you get really you know you want to <laughs> throw him out of the window and, and then it's like well are those emotions really mine you know are those my emotions do I really and then actually starting to think well actually it's that person who made me feel that way and, and then accepting that, okay, it's not my emotions. I just sensed those emotions and I sensed them so strongly that I ended up believing it's mine. And so by realizing it's not our emotions that we capture when, when we are in those counter-transference or transference situations really helps to take some distance from, the, from it and then to look at the bigger picture. Okay, why, why do I feel this anger right now uh, so that probably tells me about that other patient who probably carries a lot of anger inside of him and cannot express it and he finds another way of expressing it by making me express that anger that the anger is inside of him and so i think that's why yeah learning to understand because if i'm already someone who is who gets angry very easily it's very different then it might be my anger you know <laughs> But if I know that I don't get angry very easily, then, and so that's why to do this psychotherapy on ourselves is really helpful to really understand uh, 
where all our personal dynamics come from and, and, and also where, our, where do we lose confidence uh, and, and it's also you know, usually related to certain things we have lived through in the past. And so uh, to know that and then use those things um, actively, for example, this popular popularity thing, um, to, to give you an example, I'm the oldest one of four children. Uh, and usually the, the, that's also what I learned in, in psychotherapy in, in a, a fa family with different children. The elder, eldest ones are not always the most popular ones um, amongst the siblings. I was definitely not the most popular of our four. I get along with my brothers and sisters quite well. Um, but um, if there is someone to blame in the four of us, it's always going to be me because I'm the oldest one and so I'm the most unpopular one because all kinds of reasons. So I know that whatever I do, there is always a risk of me being unpopular. And so instead of trying to fight against it and trying to be popular, just assuming for me, when I'm in, in, in with my patients, assuming, okay, I'm unpopular, I'm used to it. I was unpopular when I was a child, you know? And so um, using those part of us when we are working with other people. So it's, it's very useful to, to to understand certain dynamics we've, we've had in, inside our families um, so that we can use them when we're working with patients. And for example, someone who is the youngest of a family, the youngest usually receives more freedom than his older brothers and sisters, and he will try out more things and be more creative. So if that person becomes a therapist, he can use that creativity and that, you know, so that he's going to have a diff very different style than someone like me, who is the oldest one and the so we will try to use those parts of us as strengths to, in order to, to find ways to help, uh, to help our patients. And it's different for everyone eh? because everyone has a different story, uh, has a different history. And, and so, but I don't know if that was answering your question because I don't remember your question anymore. <laughs> well, uh, it was about how to stay centered, yeah. And how um, to stay centered. So yes, if we know that, and so that's one thing. And then the other thing for me personally is uh, I can really see how um, meditation, although I, I feel I should do it more because every time I do it, it helps me stay grounded and centered um, when, 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 uh, when I see patients. And so what I do is when I know I'm going to have a difficult consultation uh, with a patient where there's going to be very difficult subjects that are going to be, you know, discussed or something, I do a short meditation where I, you know, I try to just stay grounded and, and, and just for a few moments, a few minutes. Um, and, and this really helps me to stay really focused when, when the person comes in and, and, and really you know, helps also to concentrate and, and not be distracted because when I'm distracted by other things, the consultation doesn't have the, the, same, um, the same power actually. Uh, it's so fascinating. and. I think you're pointing there to metacognitive awareness, an ability to monitor one's own mental and emotional state, or have at least at least a toe out of that water. It's very interesting indeed, and pointing there also to meditation as a means of reinforcing that um, mm -hmm. metacognitive awareness. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I, while you're here, uh, Dr. Caroline, I can't not ask about this. Your with your particular uh, experience. So, re religion, 
religious experience. Um, we know, I think, that religious experience is presented in uh, in a very broad way, even in the, say, psychological literature of the last hundred years or more. Freud talking about it as patently infantile. I have a quote here, actually, from um, this 1937 essay, religion comprises a system of wishful illusions together with a disavowal of reality, such as we find in an isolated form nowhere else but amentia, in a state of blissful hallucinatory confusion. <laughs> and, you know, that's, of course, in the 30s, but even as late as 2004, Ryan McKay, in writing in Evolution and Cognition, his article, Hallucinating God, the Cognitive Neuropsychiatry of Religious Belief and Experience, echoes, I think, something of that. This is from his extract. The claim that religious belief is delusional is evaluated using a current cognitive neuropsychiatric model of delusion formation and maintenance. This model explains delusions in terms of the conjunction of two cognitive deficits. The first, a neuropsychological deficit, giving rise to an anomalous perceptual experience. The second, a deficit in the machinery of belief evaluation. Very fascinating, actually, that paper, um, pointing to uh, religious belief as a sort of um, attempt to uh, somehow, perhaps even quite a logical attempt, to integrate some anomalous experience. And he points to the, the, um, uh, the example of uh, the difference between cognitive recognition and affective recognition in certain patients. Uh, this person looks like my wife, but doesn't feel, I don't feel that sense of recognition. Uh, so therefore, this isn't my wife, this is someone pretending to be my wife. It's, in a sense, a logical uh, conclusion to be drawn from an anomalous experience. And so the, the, the point or the suggestion is made that perhaps uh, quite a lot of uh, religious belief, uh, especially that coming from religious experience or anomalous mystical experience, could be seen in this sort of dysfunctional way. I'm wondering what you think about that. But also there, there have been claims made that religion can be very helpful as a sort of coping mechanism and that uh, religious belief can provide a certain level of meaning, um, particularly in clinical situations, that, that can be uh, very helpful. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, it's often said that religious conversion is one of the most effective means of uh, addiction recovery. If someone can have a complete not only psychological, but also perhaps crucially social change, uh, that this can, um, this identity and social change can be quite effective in uh, addiction recovery, an area, of course, which is notoriously poor. So I suppose, you know, you're, you're dealing with people with psychosis, uh, <laughs> chronic psychosis. I'm sure you see your fair share of of religious themes coming up there, both, oh, yes. positive, yeah, both positive and negative. I wonder if you might reflect on the range of religious themes that you see, presumably positive and negative, uh, coming up in your practice. Maybe I'll, I'll follow up with some more questions later. Uh, this is a very long question. I, can, I think I could take hours to answer that. <laughs> but maybe first to make the difference between um, someone being just benignly religious or spiritual or whatever, there's a difference between that or someone having mystical delusions. Um, by having someone who has mystical delusions, I can give you an example. I have certain patients, uh, now I'm thinking of one of them, who claims he's an atheist, 
he says he doesn't believe in anything, but in his delusions, in his hallucinations, he talks to God. So he hears the voice of God talking to him and giving him orders and telling him to do this and he shouldn't do that. And he sort of knows that's part of his problem. And so he comes to me and tells me, God has told me that now. And should I do that? Should I not do that? Uh, so, for example, he at one point, he won't dare to take a shower anymore because God told him that if he takes a shower, he'll have all kinds of different problems. So he starts to stink. So then I try to convince him to find ways how to uh, disobey God and take a shower. But this guy, if you ask him, what are your religious beliefs? He says, I'm an atheist. So it's quite quite paradoxical, you know, and, and I, it's not, you know, it's not always because you are religious that you don't have, uh, that you have mystical uh, delusion and hallucinations and the other way around, it's, it's not true. Um, uh, so, um, but I do have quite some patients who talk to God, believe in, hear God, or are chased by the devil and, or, or, or they, they hear voices of the devil trying to annoy them. And, and so the subject of religion is very, you know, it's very much there, but then there's also people who have very strong beliefs like, okay, I have all those symptoms, but then I am a very religious person. And when I go to church and when I pray, then I feel protected and I feel better. So then the religion is not part of their delusional problems, but it's actually helping them cope with all those difficulties they encounter in life. Um, and so that's, that's one thing. Uh, and again, then who are we to say that religion is a problem? I think for many people, it is really helpful for some of them might be problematic, especially if they are being raised in some very dogmatic beliefs. Uh, I've had I've had I've patients who come from very you know very Christian backgrounds, um, and then they feel they are homosexual, and it's not accepted in their you know in their Christian way of looking at things, and so they have for me they have developed all this delusions and hallucinations around this theme of homosexuality because they feel guilty and so uh, but then on the other hand that's how they are and should they feel guilty or not should they be angry at their family and in the sort of psychosis is kind of coping mechanisms with all their internal struggles they are they are having it's a way of coping with that and then what i also want to say is this whole thing about um what's a delusion in fact, when patients come to me and they say, doctor, am I normal? That's a question I hear a lot. Uh, am I normal? Um, and then, you know, my answer is what is normal? What's the function of our brain? Why do we have a brain? What's one of the most important functions of our brain? And then people are usually, they don't know what to answer to that. Um, and then I, then I say, well, the brain's function is to interpret reality, is to make sense of what's happening and actually we don't see reality as it is um we see a distorted view of reality and that's you know that joins the buddhist philosophy very much because that's also what they claim is we don't we're actually hallucinating we see a distorted version of reality and so for very simple we see colors we, there are no colors out there it's our brains who create this color function for us outside it's just wavelengths 
in our eyes, they don't see colors. They see they, they capture the wavelengths, sends this information to our occipital lobe, and um, and there uh, we interpret in certain pathologies of the eyes or of the brain make that people become colorblind. But is their reality wrong and our reality is right? I, I don't think it's just another way of looking at reality. I don't think that someone who is not colorblind sees things as they are and someone who, who is colorblind sees, a, sees something that's completely wrong. And so that's just about our senses, but everything we also anticipate. So we will see things that we expect seeing and things that we don't expect see, we will shut out. And so when there is an event happening and there are many people there, and then you ask everyone to you know, to talk about what has just happened, everybody will have different memories about what happened because we remember what's important for us. And that also depends on our background and what we have been going through. So actually no one sees reality as it is. We see as we, you know, so our brain interprets it and it's good because if we didn't have that brain to do that, we would just be in a big chaos. <laughs> so it's important you know, it's not that we should stop hallucinating, but or being delusional. It's good to to be delusional, but it's important to recognize that we are being delusional and, and hallucinating, and we see things and and, and all this story about false memories and everything. And people benignly believe about certain things, but it's because our brains continuously construct a reality for us. But um, of course, there is an influence of the outside world, but we don't see the things as they are. And so when I tell my patients, well, well what is reality? Because everyone, if, if someone hears voices and I don't hear them, who am I to say those voices are not real? Because for that person, that those voices are very real. And so my job is not to make everybody stop being delusional or hallucinating. My job is to make what they are going through livable and that they can, they dare to come out and they dare to have social interactions with other people because that's the problem the guy who doesn't dare to take a shower because god tells him not to take a shower he'll get into trouble because he's going to start to smell bad so so actually the problem is that it's not really the fact that he hears the voice of god if god tells him nice things what's the pro what's the problem and so um, and, and so for me, it's really what are the effects of what we are going through on, on our functioning in, in daily life. And my job is to help people have being able to function in society, to, to find a place where they feel well, well, they feel fine and where they have significant relationship with others, because that's what's important for us as humans. We, it's very hard to be isolated. So, um, but then religious experiences, I see that and, and it's actually said, as you say, for people with, with addiction problems, um, the fact that they start to having, you know, having religious um, convictions and everything helps in recovery. That is true. That is why, for example, the AA works, uh, works for certain people. And for certain people, it doesn't work because they don't have those religious um, uh, among other among other things, some, some people also have difficulties with group therapy, and so that, that's also why they don't go to the AA or they don't feel comfortable in the AA. But but um, people who have some sincere religious convictions, which is very authentic and not because it's part of their culture, 
That's what I mean with sincere, because if it's part of the culture, then it becomes a cultural identity, but it's not something very deeply rooted inside, but someone who, with a very sincere religious experience or, or whatever, those people tend to have, yeah, a more positive prognosis, I believe, I see. Um, I, I see that it's helpful actually it's it's not it's not a, it's not actually uh, something it's not an obstacle um i also see i have started um now i think it's been four years ago to do some small meditations with my patients you know after took me uh, many years after that first guru told me you should learn to meditate and then meditate with your patients. So I started doing that and I do very short meditations once every four weeks or something, five weeks uh, with patients who are interested. And I can really see that um, we in the beginning, we, I didn't dare to do that because I thought I'm a doctor. That's not, I'm not a chaplain. I, it's not my job to talk about religion, but patients were talking about it by themselves. They were talking about religion, about spiritual experiences. And so at one point I just decided to let them talk about whatever they felt like and then, you know, answering to what they were asking and asking questions myself. And so now every time we talk about religious experiences and I can see how helpful it is for them. And they have all kinds of different religions or even uh, one of them is even um, non-religious. Uh, but he, I can see he listens to the others and he, it, you know, it's, and no one is imposing his view on anyone because everyone is a different background. And, and, and so it's really talking about personal experiences and I can really see how helpful it is for patients. So I wouldn't say that uh, religion is something bad or something delusional or whatever, because in that case, um, it's actually very helpful for, for people. And maybe we have been separating religion too much from from the rest and, and as a human we need to integrate everything together um, instead of separating everything that's very interesting i think one doesn't expect to hear a psychiatrist say that if you're having delusions is not necessarily a bad thing uh, and that in fact you're going further than that and saying that on a certain level due to the top-down contribution that we make to our experience of reality, we're, we're all participating on some level in constructed reality uh, of some sort. And if you want delusion, function, functional, maybe uh, the, function, the functionality of that delusion varies. Um, and that's perhaps why some people will end up in your, in your treatment room. Mm -hmm. that's, very, that's very surprising. One expects a psychiatrist to say, are you hearing voices? Um, and then on goes the straitjacket. Maybe that's an old-fashioned idea. Yeah. Uh, but um, let me ask you this, you know, we may have to do a sequel uh, and, and go into this in, in some more depth, um, uh, Dr. Caroline, because this is so fascinating. But where do you think this um, attempt to frame religion and religious experience as a pathology comes from in, in the psychological literature? Where do you think this... Um, I don't know if I could say anti-religious or at least framing religion as pathology comes from and what, what are its implications? Well, for me, I believe it's very something very from, from the West, right? When Descartes started talking about dualism uh, between 
you know, the mind, which is immaterial, and then everything else, which is material, and how science started to study the material world. And, and so that's, I think, one thing. And then the other thing is the separation of church and state, which happened in a lot of countries in, in Europe, uh, where it's, there is very much this separation of both things. So um, how people can believe whatever they want, but that's in the private sphere, and, and then the other things, so science and technology and everything, we can do all those advancements without having religion. So maybe religion is old fashioned and it's the Ancien Regime uh, before the French Revolution and the clergy and, and they used, they were probably, you know, they were definitely um, abuses from the church on, on the people in the past and religion trying to dominate populations. But I think religion also has some good things because I think we are all inherently, we need to have some connection with something higher and bigger and I, I, I don't know if if what this connection is, is placebo effect or not I have no idea but meanwhile I think it's important and I think today we live in a world where uh, that's the criticism on this scientism you know that that this highly materialistic way of looking at things is that um, and that's also what we see in psychiatry is that um, people suffer because they are sick and because they are sick, they don't, they are not useful for society anymore. And so they become put aside from society because they, they, they are not useful. They don't bring money in, in the thing or all the people, you know, we put them into elderly homes uh, and we wait for them to die. Well, that's a very crude way to say things, but that's what actually kind of happens. We people who are sick and old or not useful and so psychiatric patients with psychotic problems of course they are not useful because they cannot there are very few of them who have paid jobs at least the chronic ones um, and, and so they, they, they cost money for society and so in certain countries they are even the homeless people who live on the streets because society is not even taking care of them and so um, I think we, we have and so there's this sense and this sense of loneliness you know we we don't have much connection anymore we we should have a good job high paid job and, and be useful in society and that's what i hear a lot from my patients is um i'm a burden for society and i shouldn't be here because actually they feel guilty for you know for being such a burden on society and they receive money from the state to to just live and actually they are in the way because it's complicated they 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 the, 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 you know, the, if there's something happens, it will be, they will be a burden for their families. It will be a burden for their friends. And so they will have no friends anymore. And, and so the, this, this, um, this idea, but this worldview that you need to have a job and that's what gives meaning to your life and, and, and have money and, and, and be important. And, and everyone who doesn't fit into that plate is, you know, it's actually too much or so, that's the extreme view of things. And I think it makes people suffer because that means you need to be someone important to be important. And, and actually just who I am is not enough. And, and, um, and, and maybe in, in uh, religion gives more meaning to life than just, you know, having to bring money in society and, and be useful for society. The, the, the religion, you know, they ask questions much that go much more, much further, much farther than, than just 
you know, being someone useful in a materialistic society and the day we die, then we disappear, you know, that's, that's kind of the, this material. And for many people, that's a very big um, source of suffering, actually. I think that's materialistic worldview is a much bigger source of suffering than people who are authentically uh, religious and who authentically believe in, in certain things. I wonder if that's the case. I wonder if there, there are perhaps the uh, sort of materialistic or scientism, um, as, it, as it's sometimes put, this sort of science, in a sense, an overreach of science is sometimes how scientism is framed, um, is committing that actually a religious mistake, which is, um, for example, I think perhaps some some of the motivation behind an attempt to um, debunk religion, or at least disrupt it, may come from an observation of the uh, sorts of suffering that religion can cause, strongly held religious belief and conviction. Uh, for instance, of course, many people have suffered at the at the hands of religiously justified actions of various kinds, or actions carried out by religious figures. Uh, or religious authorities on a small scale and a large scale. And the, I think, um, a natural response to that would be to say, well, on what basis is this assertion being made? On what basis is this authority being wielded on the basis of religion? And then we, we examine, well, what value does, the, does religion have as a truth claim if it can produce um, this kind of a consequence. And so then it, naturally one might say, well, what's a better basis of uh, truth claim or authority? Well, perhaps science, scientific method, uh, you know, experimentation and uh, evidence, etc. And I think it's an understandable, uh, and perhaps in many cases, we think of just simply the history of medical medical science, and the advances that have, have come from using evidence to uh, open up uh, uh, poss different possibilities. But the problem seems to be that, as you, as you point out, uh, at least at this point, scientific method and so on can't give us all the knowledge that we need. This need to be in, in part of some story. This need to be uh, ha have some place in some sort of cultural narrative. And perhaps uh, there, when we um when science overreaches what it can provide um it it commits then the same error uh, that religion commits i wonder what you what you think of that yeah actually it's also true that of course uh at least i can talk for europe for belgium we have had the 20th century and the two world wars which reached over here and caused a lot of trauma and uh, how uh, the official religion, which, you know, was not very, uh, you know, especially in the Second World War, how the Catholic Church protected um, the Nazis. Um, and then also what we saw, I think the, at least the Catholic religion became very rigid uh, I know, for example, both my parents went to Catholic boarding schools um, where the, the run by my dad by a priest and my mom by nuns. And I know more about my mom talks a lot about this and 
how those nuns were very rigid and very, you know, in, 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 and so how those children who went to those schools saw how, how nefarious these effects of, of this Catholic dominated culture was, was harming actually people. And then of course, now we know all those stories about uh, sexual abuses that have come out uh, of the last, only last what, decade or something. Um, uh, on, on, on the abuses of children by priests um, uh, from the Catholic Church and how the Catholic Church has been covering that up all the time. And, 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 um, and so those are all very traumatic experiences. And, and, and of course, when you have go through something traumatic, the person who then you, you know, you reject everything that has to do with that trauma. And so people have rejected uh, very strongly, um, at least here, uh, I don't know if it's the case in all the countries, but at least here in Belgium, there is a very big reje rejection of, of, uh, of, of the Catholic uh, religion. Um, but then on the, at the same hand, then you see it's like there is some vacuum and then people have nothing to believe in anymore. And, you know, and, and, and so the, I would say that's more my parents' generation who has, you know, been drawn away from 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 religion and and then younger generations like my generations who are more looking at something to give meaning anyways and we see that science has sort of reply science with a big s has sort of replaced religion with a big r and, and it's like the new religion <laughs> and 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 and, um, and maybe that's not it people are looking for meaning and and they don't find enough meaning in what science knows right now, even though I think science, scientific research has been doing some very interesting uh, things recently. They start to research um, people who have near-death experiences and things like that. So they are, they are, I think they are, there's an opening up of the science of consciousness, which, which can be, you know, in the future will be very, we will, I think we still have a lot of to, to, to discover um, in the future, but, um, but people right now, there are a lot of people who are really searching for some meaning and, and this scientist, scientism way of explaining the world is not enough. And, and so people are drawn to, for example, to Buddhism, um, but also to some all kind of weird type of cults or, or and, and so there's also a danger in that so some new age type of uh, ways of looking at things and, and because people are confused and they don't know what to believe anymore and, 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 and now we see people who reject science uh, <laughs> who, who start to say well um, science scientists or medical doctors have heard too much have done too much uh, have, have done too much harm to me so they reject completely what science has to say and so it's like we go from one extreme to another and we are not capable of finding you know the right balance the middle way where we are have some sort of trust in something bigger that you know goes above us but without being blind you know without falling for blind trust in something maybe that's one of, of our problems is that we risk to fall for blind trust too easily or <laughs> i don't know that's uh, so fascinating to, to talk about this with you and it seems to me that perhaps the problem in some level is this dogmatism yeah this dogmatism um we can pit 
the worst of religion against the best of science and then religion will lose. We can pit the best of religion against the worst of science, say scientism, for example, and of course, uh, we'll, we'll see a different result. It seems th the problem is the dogmatism. If, if science falls into dogmatic scientism views, it's not so, not so good. If religion, when it's applied, <clears throat> and truly it has been, we know this, in dogmatic ways, it can become really very inhuman and, and quite toxic. And so uh, uh, this seems to be this sort of interaction between these two forces seems to have characterized much of much of it, certainly Western civilization, I, I would say. So I wonder if the, the enemy in, in a way of uh, that science and religion are so similar in the sense that their, their enemy is dogmatism. Uh, what do you think? Yes, yes, actually, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think uh, the problem is not religion. The problem is not science. The problems are scientific dogmatism or scientism or on the other hand, religious dogmatism, and we see that in, in society where the problem is, is, is the extremism, religious views who are become intolerant to other views, uh, but also the extreme materialistic views who become uh, intolerant of people who are religious and, you know, push them down as saying, oh, you're being superstitious or whatever. Or, or this really anti-Christian way of, of viewing things and, and just throwing everything away from the Catholic Church. Um, as I said, I grew up in, in, in a Catholic uh, school. Uh, well, I always went to Catholic schools. I went to a Catholic university. And um, this, this way of, of uh, rejecting completely the Catholic way of looking at things, I have a problem with that because of course, in Catholic uh, thought, there have been problems uh, when we hear about sexual abuse in the church and everything. Uh, this is really something that sh should not have happened. But I think the problem was the human beings who did that. And so to say, I don't believe anything from the Catholic church anymore because they have done such bad things in the past. Well, then I'm like, well, when you really read the Bible and you read the New Testament and you read the story about Jesus, I mean, he's not responsible for, if you really listen to his teachings, things like abuses wouldn't have happened in the Catholic Church, and they do happen outside the Catholic Church too, in other religions too. Um, there are stories of, of um, in, in other communities, like in Buddhism, there have been stories of uh, uh, sexual abuse. So it's happening wherever there are humans, I, I believe, human groups. So rejecting everything because there is one problem or one negative thing, uh, I think it's problematic. And the other way around to reject big pharma, reject all Western doctors. Well, still there are many people who say, I don't trust, in sci I don't trust science, but when they have a problem, they are the first ones to be in the emergency room and trusting science for the doctors to save them. So, and they use science to, to, to help people. So. Um, and there have been abuses in the scientific uh, research, and there have been abuses and problems in uh, pharmaceutical companies trying to hide uh, certain side effects of certain medication because they want to sell more. Or they are problems, but that doesn't mean that all the medications should be thrown away because um, many of our medications save people lives, people's lives, or make their lives better. Um, 
and we need to be more nuanced and stop looking at this black and white and look at all the gray in between because the, we are human beings, no one's perfect, so society is not perfect either and any uh, institution in society will will have its flaws and even its problems and and so I think it's it's there there are good things in everything there are good things about science, very good things about science it has made that there is a lot of progress thanks to uh, science which has made us our life more comfortable, which has extended human life uh, thanks to for example antibiotics or whatever but then the the um, religion also has very good things because I see that you know patients who are authentically I'm not saying religious as an identity as being something dogmatic because I think that creates a problem like you know I am I'm, I'm a Muslim and I believe that this and that because I'm a Muslim and my family is like that I think that becomes dogmatic also and, and becomes problematic when it's dogmatic it becomes problematic but really people who really sincerely have some religious trust or experiences it's also it's so helpful for them and in, in for their environment um, I have friends whose grandparents were deeply Catholic people very 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 Catholic people during the Second World War and they lived in a Jewish neighborhood in Antwerp and when the Nazis starting started to look after the Jews to take them and send them to Auschwitz um, they hit two Jewish children in their house the whole during the whole war and they risked they had children by themselves and they took took in their house two Jewish kids uh, and, and they, they, they protected those kids uh, during the whole war and they were very lucky because they could have been caught a few times because they have been denounced a few times by neighbors or whatever and so the Gestapo came to their house to search the entire house and those kids could hide and, and never being caught, but could have been. And so when when I talk about well now the, the they are dead, but when when I talk to to um, to uh, my friends when I talk to my friend's mother and I ask her, oh my God, I don't know if I would be able to do that if I had my children and take in children from another family in my house, knowing it's going to risk the life of my entire family. And then her answer was very simple. She said, but my parents were very religious people and they, they had this profound connection to religion and for them they were they didn't even consider of not taking in those children it's just just how it should be so those religious people and she really says it thanks to the religion that those parents risked their life in the life of their entire family and they actually save lives by doing so. And it's, it's, I think it's a, a wonderful, amazing story. And so we cannot just say religion is a bad thing that we should throw away because it helps, it, it helps people make very good choices and very courageous choices that I'm not sure I would have been able to do if I had been in, in their situation. I don't know. And then they, and then they tell you, well, if you see two small kids, you just don't think about it and you just do it. Uh, it's protecting, you know, other humans and you will just do it. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I need to be in the situation to know that. But, but they clearly say it's the religion that made them take such decisions. So religion has very good sides too. Very interesting discussion, Dr. Caroline. Thank you for uh, being so generous with your time. And I'd love to petition you for a sequel.
Uh, there's still so much we could talk about. I'd love to uh, also talk to you uh, about personality disorders of various types. We've talked a little of psychosis. Um, we've talked of these things, but I'd love to talk about personality disorders and the um, what occurs when someone with some sort of a personality disorder is in a religious context. And perhaps also a little bit about um, aber reactions of meditation experience and mystical experiences. We're often hearing that these days, uh, discussions of the negative consequences of uh, certain meditation retreats, going on meditation retreat, having some sort of transcendent experience, some sort of personality shattering or schema altering encounter uh, somehow, and then having great difficulty integrating that. And actually, e essentially uh, having, we hear reports sometimes of people having a psychotic break, actually, yeah. on meditation retreat. So what can we think of going into such a, a retreat? Um, how do we integrate religious experiences of the benign and also sometimes frightening. How can we integrate those? Um, what's your perspective on that? I'd really like to discuss that with you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you are, you, are you up for that? Part two? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. yes. I okay, think, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for being so generous with your time. This has been enormously fascinating. Dr. Caroline Van Dam, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.